Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel, and I'm the co-host of this show. And my name is Tyler Buckingham. I'm the other co-host. We have with us today an outstanding guest, David Abel, reporter and filmmaker from the Boston Globe. And a little bit of introduction about our guest today. David Abel has been with the Boston Globe since 1999. He has covered conflict all over the world. Uh, He's covered international terrorism. He is now the lead reporter at the Boston Globe on climate change. Uh, David is also a filmmaker and has, uh, to his credit, five films already since 2012. And we're here today to talk about his coastal films, uh, in particular, his latest, Lobster War, which is an award-winning feature film about the climate-fueled conflict over lobster fisheries between the United States and Canada in an area called the Gray Zone. And we're gonna get into that with David. He is also the director and producer of Gladesman, a film about the last of the strawgrass strawgrass cowboys. And that is the folks down in the uh, Florida Everglades, a great film. And his other film, Sacred Cod, another feature length documentary about the collapse of the historic cod fishery up in the Northeast part of the United States. Uh, David, Born in New York City, University of Michigan, Northwestern University, a filmmaker, a reporter, and a professor. We are so pleased to have you on the on the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you for being with us, David Abel. Thank you so much for having me. David, we really look forward to getting into uh, today's discussion. But first, we've got to we got to pay the old light bill. Peter, let's hear a word from our sponsors. We have three sponsors on the American Shoreline Podcast Network that keep us alive and going. Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida, a firm dedicated to the restoration of dune systems with native and natural uh, plants, led by Frederic Barisset. Very good company. Find them at dunedoctors.com. And Coastal Engineering Consultants, headed up by our good friend, Michael Poff. They are out of Naples, Florida, and you can learn all about them at CoastalEngineering.com. And LJA Engineering with 28 offices in Texas and around the Gulf of Mexico. Outstanding coastal engineering firm led by Bill Worsham in that section. Uh, Find them at LJA.com. David Abel, it's great to have you on the American Shoreline podcast. Tell us a little bit about your film, Lobster War. Sure. Uh, So Lobster War is a film that in broad strokes is about how climate change is affecting uh, perhaps the most valuable species in at least the United States, uh, and that is lobster. And it uh, tells that story through the prism of this conflict that uh, dates back to the end of the Revolutionary War. And to make a long story short, it Uh, looks at this conflict between Canada and the United States over this small island uh, between Nova Scotia and Down East Maine. Uh, It's called Machias Seal Island. Nobody has really cared too much about the island itself, but they uh, they have cared about the waters, some 277 square miles uh, that uh, fishermen on both sides call the gray zone. And they call it the gray zone because the waters are disputed and uh, whoever owns the island uh, c- can claim the waters and set the set the borders. Um, that that conflict has been at a very low level for quite some time, um, but it wasn't really until uh, the last decade or so when the waters in the Gulf of Maine, which are warming 
uh, faster than nearly any other body of water on the planet, uh, began to heat up so much that uh, the very cold waters in the gray zone started to reach a sweet spot for lobsters. And uh, that uh, led to a surge in the lobster population. And that surge uh, led Canadians in the area who long ceded the waters to the Americans to say, uh, those are our waters too, and we're going to fish them. And that has uh, that decision has led to an influx of Canadian fishermen into the gray zone, and has led to all kinds of conflict, including um, including sabotage of each other's traps, people, fishermen from both sides of the border hauling up each other's traps and taking each other's lobster, uh, to threats of violence. And uh, the waters are incredibly crowded right now with fishermen, and that uh, makes it uh, very dangerous to, to fish in these waters. Yeah, you know, uh, and of course, for our audience and uh, uh, David, it was great to meet you at the International Ocean Film Festival where we we got to see this film and uh, you did an amazing job telling this story. It's a story about uh, a border dispute. It's a story about fishermen and fishing communities and the way they live and how climate change is putting tremendous pressures um, not only on, on the, the economics of pulling these fish out and selling them, but also there's this psychological element of these communities that are in a state of economic flux. And it's fascinating. And you, you did an amazing job. And I just have to ask, David, how you uh, came upon this story and what inspired you to make a film about it. Thank you so much for the kind words. And it was great to meet you guys there as well. Um, so, uh, so, my uh, job, my day job is as a reporter at the Boston Globe, and I cover environmental issues. And a big part of that in this part of the world is covering fisheries. And uh, as you noted at the top, I made a film a few years ago about uh, the collapse of the cod fishery in New England. And the cod fishery here is uh, hugely important, and it uh, is really what brought settlers uh, from Europe to uh, our shores here, and it's what really helped finance the American Revolution, and it's what brought uh, great wealth to our region, and it was um, incredibly uh, devastating for fishermen in this region when the cod population collapsed uh, earlier this decade, and that collapse led the federal government to take the unprecedented action of declaring a moratorium on all commercial fishing of cod in our region. And that led to hundreds of fishermen uh, losing their boats and their way of life. And um, and now the cod fishery in New England is at probably uh, 5% of what would constitute a sustainable fishery. And so that, that film in a lot of ways was about how climate change was affecting cod uh, or the rapidly warming waters here off New England or affecting our iconic species. And that film led me to uh, an interest in learning about what was happening with lobster. And a few years ago, I learned about this conflict between the Canadians and the Americans over this island. And I wrote a story about it for uh, the the Boston Globe. And, um, and there was so much uh, in that 
story, but there was so much that I could only fit into 1,200 words that you can get into the newspaper. And I felt like there was a, a much deeper, richer narrative uh, that I could tell. Um, and, and the medium of film just really seemed like the right way to do it because it is so beautiful there. And there are so many passions and it's a complicated issue. And so I uh, decided uh, to um, to go up there and make this film uh, and try to tell the story fairly from both sides of the border. And I, I think you did that, David. And, and I think uh, the gray zone and the fight over this newly productive uh, lobster fishery on the border between the U.S. and Canada is an outstanding uh, prism to look at the issue of climate change uh, because what it shows us is this transition that's occurring in fisheries as they are changed by climate and water temperature. And lobster is a temperature-sensitive animal, so we're seeing this huge migration of lobsters along the American shoreline uh, and the associated impacts in the communities that rely on this fishery. It's the migration of the animals, but it's also the migration of the economic value in the industry. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the human side of, uh, of climate change and how it's revealed in the lobster fishery up in the Gulf of Maine? Absolutely. And so when we think of it, when we talk about climate change, the the conversation often gets bogged down by intangibles and difficulty um, uh, comprehending computer models. And, and we often think about it as some sort of distant abstract threat. Um, and we talk about potential um, temperature changes over 50 to 100 years. Uh, and the reason I wanted to make this film and uh, the film uh, Sacred Cod was because there is nowhere perhaps more clearly that we're seeing the impact of climate change than in our oceans and um, and very uh, tangibly in our fisheries. And that has a very direct impact on the people whose lives rev- for generations whose whose fathers uh, and and grandfathers all relied on um, the sea to make a living and in my part of the world here in New England that is a big part of our economy and we are seeing changes um, that are real and tangible and and it makes it clear that climate change is not distant or abstract, but it's having an effect on people's lives today. In um, as uh, While we've seen a surge in the lobster population here uh, in where my film Lobster War centers around in the gray zone, um, we've seen further to the south, south of Cape Cod, down into Long Island Sound, a collapse of the lobster fishery. Uh, there is now a 90% decline uh, in the catch off of Connecticut and Rhode Island uh, and Long Island, where there was once a great and vital catch and supported hundreds of uh, fishermen. And now uh, that, has, that has changed and people have lost their jobs. Uh, they've had to find a, a new way of life. And, um, 
And that can be very difficult, especially when you're, you have a mortgage on a boat, when you've, you know, invested a tremendous amount of your, of your life and your resources into a career that suddenly you can't do anymore. Yeah, it is. A, it really is a stunning uh, example of the implications of climate change. Uh, we we're familiar generally with the notion of the collapse of the lobster fishery uh, in the southern uh, fishery down in Cape Cod and south. Uh, we had a great conversation with a lobster scientist, Dr. Joe Kunkel, uh, recently, and he explained that as well. I think very consistent with this with the uh, narrative that that you've reached in your own uh, work and research. Uh, and it is, you know, it, it is important that that we tell these stories. And I would love the filmmaking platform for the reason you described. It is a way to get beyond uh, the atmospheric science and the computer models and the confusion and to look at these vivid transitions that are happening on the American shoreline and the impact on on people. So I think the film, I, I absolutely love the film. I, I think it tells the story in a tremendously insightful way. Uh, and it's not the only part of the, uh, the world where this is happening. Uh, we see it around the world. Uh, I wonder if, if it's reasonable to expect uh, folks to, to uh, be enlightened in a way that they see this issue uh, openly as a, as a reporter and someone who works on climate change, uh, how do you think uh, the audience receives this kind of information or in our, in our say, in our political decision-making process? Are we receptive to this truth that you're telling here? Um, well, I, I've been really grateful to have an opportunity to attend screenings of this film and uh, Sacred Cod uh, and my last, uh, my last film about the Everglades. And that film is a, about how climate change is affecting the Everglades um, and sea level rises is a big issue there uh, because we're talking about a lot of salt water intruding into fresh water and that, uh, that radically changes the ecosystem there. Um, you know, I've had a, a really wonderful opportunity to talk to people who are um, interested in these issues. And so it's a sort of selective crowd who come to see these films. Um, but I also have talked to a lot of s folks who are skeptical and, um, and, you know, some fishermen don't believe the science. Some folks are just resistant to uh, any, any conversation that uh, might, might, differ from what they're seeing. Um, with sacred cod, it was a bit of a challenge uh, in some parts uh, because some of the fishermen there were saying, the government is wrong. The surveys are wrong. There are cod. Uh, we have plenty of cod to fish. Except um, in that case, the example that I, uh, or the analogy that was made to me is that there are pockets of of cod left, for example, uh, but uh, they basically are in their spawning areas. And, you know, the analogy for me was, well, if you came to Boston and you were looking for Americans and uh, Boston uh, was um, 
what was doing fine, but the rest of if you went anywhere else in the United States and there were no people, uh, but all of the people were in Boston, it might seem fine if you came to Boston, but if you went anywhere else, uh, you know, it would be a problem because you weren't seeing any other Americans. Um, so uh, to make a shorter answer from a longer answer, um, I think the vast majority of people that I've spoken to who've seen the film, I think get it and understand that these are um, these are not remote issues. These are not uh, somebody else's problems. These are having an impact on their neighbors and on their communities, and that this is something uh, that needs to be addressed. Yeah. You know, David, one of the things I've been just dying to talk to you about after seeing the film is the psychological uh, elements that are in play here for these lobstermen. And one of the things I loved that you did is you you kind of took us into the home of one particular, actually, you went, you took us into the home of a number of lobstermen and, and uh, fisheries and enforcement people and law enforcement, et cetera. And uh, we really got to, you interviewed these people and let them kind of tell their story. I thought that was really great to put a face and a voice to these various perspectives. Um, but I'm thinking of, of one, uh, Mainer, uh, lobsterman, uh, who was having a new boat built. And, um, now surely the facts are in front of him. Uh, he, he knows that further South in Maine, uh, the lobster fishery has dried up and he's to the north. And he, he, like you said, he's in the sweet spot right now. So he's doing presumably quite well purchasing a new, you know, and there's evidence of this that I'm sure that the economies up there and these fishing communities are, are thriving right now um, with record catches. But the psychology of it, knowing that the fishery is changing, there, there, there are some like leaps that happen because you want, if this is your thing and this is what your father did and what you did and you live in a lobster town, how do you say, goodness, in three year, years and 10 years or whatever it is, this might not, I don't even know how you would confront that. And I'm curious to ask you, you were there, you were hanging around with these people. I'm sure that you, you know, had the opportunity to break bread with these families. Like what, what, what are their outlooks? And, and I'll go a step further. These guys have children. What are their children think? <laughs> well, um, it's hard to um, walk away from something that is bringing so much uh, money into an economy. And for now, and for at least uh, the last uh, few years, we're going on probably at least a decade now, the lobster population has been on this surge uh, in this part of the world. And uh, a lot of people are investing, and that is um, raising concerns because they have to catch more. Uh, they, they build new boats, and in our film, uh, one of the fishermen, Brian Cates, who is in his 60s, um, it, it, we see him um, buying a, a boat for hundreds of thousands of dollars, building a brand new boat. And, you know, he's going to have to pay for that. And to pay for that, he's going to have to catch a lot of lobster. And, um, and a lot of these guys, you know, they, they are living in the present and they are 
adding additions to their homes and they're and they're buying new trucks and they are uh, buying new equipment and you're seeing this uh, on both sides of the border in Canada as well. So it's very hard to extricate yourself from uh, from a, a success. On the flip side of that, though, fishermen are are worrywarts. They, um, by nature, fear, yeah. you know, what will happen tomorrow, and they understand um, that anything can change. And we got a kind of shot across the bow and and a flicker of concern last year, um, uh, rather in uh, 2017, um, the lobster population dropped uh, some 15 to 20 percent, or sorry, the lobster catch in all of Maine dropped 15 to 20 percent off the high, um, the record high in 2016. And that was still that catch, um, which was a hundred brought a hundred million dollars less to the region's economy than the year before. While that was still quite quite a good catch, it scared people and made them think perhaps we're now in the downwards swing. Uh, but the most recent figures show that last year's catch, the 2018 catch, ticked up again. It's not it wasn't quite the record of 2016, but uh, it's still a it's still a very healthy catch, and by any measure. Um, you know, that is comforting news to a lot of the lobstermen, but they have all kinds of other challenges coming up. And uh, those go beyond um, um, beyond the direct impact of climate change on lobster, but in fact, actually have um, a, they're being affected by the impact of climate change on other marine species. And so, for example, the main bait that uh, lobstermen use is herring. And the herring population, for a variety of reasons, and uh, a lot of that has to do with, uh, with overfishing, has collapsed. And the uh, fishermen, the, the lobstermen in the area, now are struggling to find replacements for their main bait. So the federal government uh, last year created a... Um, or cut the quotas for the herring catch substantially so that many uh, lobstermen now are using pig hide to actually to catch lobster. And if people find out that pig hide is being used as bait, uh, that might, that might not be uh, so um, uh, make, make lobster seem so appetizing. And then there, there's another issue that, um, that might actually, that is likely to be the subject of my next film, uh, which I almost began shooting today. Um, and that is the impact of climate change on North Atlantic right whales. And right whales are among the most threatened species on the planet, the most endangered species on the planet at the moment. There are yeah. some 400 uh, right whales left, fewer than 100 females and the biggest threat to the um uh to the whales are some three million lobster lines in the waters from cape cod up through uh canada and 
right whales are also being affected by climate change because their food source has been moving, and their and their so their natural um, path, their, their natural migration patterns are changing, and uh, that makes it harder to control for uh, where where and when to take lobster traps out. Uh, of the water to allow them freer passage. And so the federal government right now is considering taking action to protect right whales that could require massive closures um, for lobstermen and mean that uh, there could be other effects that um, aren't directly related to the the health of the lobster population that could be catastrophic for lobstermen. There is a lot going on on the American shoreline. Wow. Uh, that is a lot to unpack. And for the for the listeners out there, a couple of uh, the frames of reference uh, that we haven't quite introduced. Uh, back, I, I, and you can help me with this, David, but about 10 years back, if we go back to the early uh, 2000s, a lobster catch total was, a commercial catch total was somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 45 million tons a year. Uh, we are well over 100 million tons in the last couple of years, uh, including the dip in 2017. So when you see a natural system explode like that, go from 40 more, say 40 million tons a year caught to 125 or 130 million tons, it tells you that something extraordinary is happening. And it's not the case here that there are just suddenly so many more people fishing that we're just getting more of it. The, the population is exploding. As you say, it's in this sweet spot right now. And the value of the main fishery, as you said, the, the, the most wealthy fishery in the world, most uh, valued at about a billion dollars in direct and indirect impact annually in Maine. It's gigantic. It's critical. Uh, there, I get the feeling. I got the feeling in watching the film that there's almost a bit of a gold rush mentality right now. That there's this get while the getting is good. Uh, that boy, this is an extraordinary thing right now. We're gonna we're gonna get the new boat. We're gonna get the new truck. We can get out there and and really take advantage of this moment in time. Uh, the irony of Brian Gates's boat called the Legacy, I thought, was just striking uh, mm. because of its. The, the the hope embodied in that boat and and the name of the boat you're feeling like this guy's planning to pass this down to his son and his children they're going to be doing this for 25 years it's worth the investment i mean it, it's that it's that gold rush feel did you get that when you're there do you is it feel like that totally actually one of the one of the titles of the film that we were considering uh, was lobster rush uh, for gold rush? Uh, that is that is exactly what it feels like, at least in that part of the world. And just to just to give you some figures, um, the 2016 haul was worth 538 million. And you're right, uh, you know there are other dire- indirect impacts and other economic benefits that uh, probably make it worth about a billion uh, to the local economy. But that. million was three times the value of the 2000 catch. In 1950, by comparison, the catch, um, the lobster catch was worth just $6 million in Maine. Extraordinary. And the the other, uh, it's got to be hard to react to 
this foreboding, this sense of bad news, to look at the collapse of the lobster fishery in the southern zone when you are in the most productive years ever in the main fishery. Uh, but as uh, Dr. Joe Kunkel told us in the interview we did with him, he's, made, he's the lobster scientist. He said this, as you know, is, of course, is all moving northward. Uh, and he said, you know, we might figure out how to handle what's going on by the time the fishery is centered in Canada, because it used to be centered south, south of Cape Cod. It's migrating northward as an economic activity and as a fishery. Uh, it, it's got to be hard to if you're in the middle of getting wealthy uh, and having record catches to think that, gee, within 10 years, this could all be gone. I, I, it's, it's that notion that Tyler's brought up about how do you be prudent and conservative and careful at a time when it's never been better. Those just don't go together. Can I jump in on this too? Like here's the other thing that strikes me, David, is that uh, we're dealing with a, very difficult. The, the The lobstermen are extremely political, politically organized. They've been at this for a long time. There are all sorts of associations uh, and and uh, political groups that exist. And now we are injecting in this change in the fishery. And the question is: Can the fishery laws and regulations? do their best to modulate and moderate the economic transformation so that you don't have a boom and bust, you know, like that's one of the reasons why we have a government at all is to, uh, protect us from, you know, severe economic downturn and, and kind of moderate it, you know, uh, I'm curious to know when you're up there, is there, is, is there hope that, there will be a management solution uh, to this fishery, I'm going to say crisis. I know they're in the high point now, but clearly the way the fishery is moving, it's leaving a, a trail of, I don't, I don't want to call it destruction, but clearly there's just, there's, there's money up North and there isn't down South. I mean, that's, that's going to change. That's going to change Maine. That's going to change the change New England. Right. Um, well, I, I would just say that first off, fishermen by nature are fiercely independent people, and uh, they they want as little regulation as possible. Um, so they're not necessarily looking for some kind of government solution. At the same time, they also understand that uh, regulation is needed because uh, without it, it without it, there would be just a free for all, and it would be you know, very easy to imagine the, the seas being vacuumed up uh, by hordes of fishermen and nothing left for uh, the future. And I would say lobstermen are a bit different than other fishermen I've come across in that conservation is built into their, um, into their fishery in a way uh, that is rare. Um Lobster fishing is in has been compared in some cases to aquaculture in that you have all of these, you know, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of lobster traps in the waters where they're feeding um, the where, where they're feeding lobster and smaller lobsters can get in and out of the uh, the traps um, and those that that stay in there by law, have to be thrown back um, if they're below a certain size. And in the 
in the United States or in Maine, at least, um, and most of New England, if they're above a certain size, if they're considered the brood stock, the, the, the big time spawners, um, they have to be thrown back as well. That, of course, is one of the differences between the Canadian and the American fishery, where the Canadians are allowed to keep the bigger uh, lobster. And that's a sore point, particularly in the gray zone, where the the Americans are constantly annoyed that the Canadians are taking the spawners and uh, the ones that are going to keep the keep the lobster pop uh, lobster population going. Yeah, David, I think the and, and that was clear in the film, the differences in the management style between the two uh, countries, the differences in the boats. I mean, the technology was different. It was really interesting to see this coming into play in the gray zone. Uh, but I want to ask a bigger a step up uh, a couple of levels in the discussion and talk about uh, one thing that I heard at the at the film festival in interviewing a sustainable fisheries uh uh, promoter, uh, Crystal Sanders, who was really great. She said, you know, fish are the last wild animals we catch, uh, for food in America. And I thought, gee, that's, you know, that's true on, if you look at what we do in fisheries, that we're reliant on a natural productive system to meet market demand and to pay the mortgage on the legacy you know, and to pay for the Brian Gates's new truck. I mean, all of this is we're connecting our wants and desires and our economic uh, goals to a creature that we do not control. Uh, and we've seen this transition in the terrestrial world and how we've moved away from hunting game animals for meat and production and for uh, commercial use into an uh, an agri- uh, into uh, you know agriculture agriculture and to cattle and to management basically right. what would be considered aquaculture i mean when you're looking at this issue on with cod and down in the everglades and now looking at right whales of course we don't harvest right whales anymore uh in the same way um is it are we of here's my big question are we going to ultimately end up in an aquaculture based marine economy as we respond to the changes in these natural systems? Um, well, I think that federal regulators want to see more of that. And in, in, in truth, um, we import roughly 90% of the seafood uh, that is sold uh, in the United States. And uh, a, 90%, that's a stunning number. Yeah, it is. It is a massive uh, number. Um and that is likely to grow as more people, uh, as our population grows and more people um, are eating seafood. Um, but uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the fish caught uh, that we import is, uh, is, is grown, in a sense, through, aqua, through aquaculture. And there are a lot of efforts to increase our aquaculture here in the United States. Um, I was just uh, uh, up in uh, a city called Belfast, Maine, where there is currently a big controversy over uh, uh, this very new technology used to create um, an indoor um, aquaculture farm for salmon. And um, 
and you know there's concerns about frankenfish and 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 genetic diseases that you pass on by raising you know fish in in tanks as opposed to in the wild um but the technology has gotten a lot better and it's far more feasible to do on a large scale and um and there are reasons you know good reasons why this is likely to um uh, be more uh, part of our seafood diet and um, and is arguably necessary. Hmm. Indoor salmon up in Belfast. I know shrimp farming in Idaho right now. Uh, you mentioned the frankenfish. The FDA just approved the first genetically modified fast-growing salmon, which I believe was developed in Canada. Uh, that has been approved. Um, I think we're seeing this trend, and uh, it also highlights this romantic notion we have of of commercial fishing and uh, the you know the small independent guy out on the boat fighting the elements, making a living. It's a very I don't want to say romantic. It's absolutely a stunning way to make a living uh, because of its inherent danger and uh, the, the reliance on wits and and experience and judgment and all of that. It's, uh, it, and we, and we're captivated by that. We, we are going to, you know, I think as, as a, as the society transitions here, uh, we're, we're drawn to these experiences in these people. Uh, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in here though. Cause I, I look at the history of, um, the transition in America from when we were basically market hunting, animals out of existence uh animals like for example elk of course were immediately uh expatriated from from most of their native range Um, but even animals that you wouldn't think would be hunted for food and for market purposes like for example raccoons were complete i mean raccoons are everywhere now but they were gone they were off the landscape and um eventually uh, in the early 1900s, after the buffalo hunts, there was a concerted uh, movement in America to protect uh, these animals and to really change the ethic. So to, to this day, it is illegal to market hunt. I, I, you cannot sell uh, game meat. Wild meat is protected. Um with very few exceptions and uh that the same and and what the what preceded that was completely wiping it out i mean that's how far we got we just completely annihilated the wild game population in north america and then we came up with laws to bring them back and now uh americans do interface with those populations and take from those populations, but it's managed in a much different way. And it's recreational. And it's, it's, it's gotten rid. Exactly. It's not commercial. It's that part of it is illegal. And, and we got, we, we had to do away with it because the commercial forces were too high. They were just too much. People were, Oh, I need to put dinner on the table tonight. I got to shoot a deer. Yeah. You know, and the same, that's the, we've, we've given fishermen that same, uh, uh, motivation, that same profit motive. And I just can't help but think as long as that exists, they're going to, I mean, like you said, that legacy uh, note needs to be paid. Right, exactly. Um, And, um, you know, as you were saying earlier, though, 
you know, it is easy to romanticize this lifestyle. Um, you know, fishermen are really the last true hunter gatherers of our society. Um, and, uh, at the same time, it is really hard work and, um, and dangerous work. I think, um, the fish fishermen, um, have the most dangerous or the second most dangerous jobs on, uh, in the country and lobstermen, perhaps, uh, they're, I'd say that lobstermen probably are, um, in the most dangerous of fishing jobs because the amount of rope that's constantly moving on a, on the deck of a boat is, uh, is really dangerous and it's so easy. Uh, we certainly saw this when we were filming uh, to get an ankle caught in one of these ropes with a lobster trawl, um, you know, a series of lobster traps connected by rope being fed overboard. And it, it's just, there, there are all kinds of things. So in some ways, um, you know, if you, if you compare it to like the hard work of coal mining, uh, and the dangers of coal mining, uh, there would be benefits to not having uh, to expose people to these kinds of dangers. But, uh, you know, try telling that to a fisherman and right. hey, that that's not going to fly. Well, you know, I, and I was in Sitka, Alaska a couple of summers ago, and, 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 I, and I see this in every coastal fishing town you go to. There's the monument uh, to the to the fishermen who have been lost at sea. Uh, somewhere in the town, uh, in Sitka, there is a, there is a square, basically there's a statue, all of the names are there. I think this is true in Gloucester. Uh, and it's not romantic. I mean, this is absolutely, uh, you're right. It's the last hunter gatherer. It's the place where people make a living in direct relationship to nature and the risks involved, uh, in dispossessing, uh, communities of this life and this commitment and all of the things that go with it is, is not going to happen. If it does happen, it is not going to happen easily. And I think what Tyler and I have been discussing after we watched the film is how that transition occurred in the terrestrial environment, what preceded, uh, and it's both the level of exploitation of the resource, it's incapacity to respond to the demand we put on it. Number one, but number two, it was the very hard work of Teddy Roosevelt and other early conservation leaders who developed and defined uh, an ethic of conservation and a different relationship with the natural world. And the thing that we are sort of debating after we watched the film was whether that kind of ethical transformation can happen with fish or sea creatures, because, you know... A, a buffalo is a beautiful, magnificent thing, as is an elk. And there's some way we connected that a little bit. But a slippery fish in a net is a little. <laughs> I mean, does it have the same ethical, moral pull to drive a different conservation ethic and how we relate to ocean resources? What do you think? I mean, now that's a bit of an esoteric question, but I really think that's kind of deep down in here somewhere. Um, it's it's hard to say. I mean, we did it with with whales, um, as you noted. We don't harvest whales anymore, and um, and marine mammals, uh, for the most part, we uh, view as sentient creatures that we don't uh, fish anymore. Um, you know, I I I think that 
uh, wild-caught seafood is so part of our culture and we have this, you know, exploding global population that we need to feed, uh, that the likelihood that there is going to be any uh, dramatic changes in the way uh, um, we catch uh, seafood or the um, marketability or desire for wild-caught seafood is going to last for quite a, a while. Um, and um, I don't see any, any, any significant changes in that, but, um, you know, conservation and, and, and thinking about how you can fish sustainably is a growing uh, phenomenon that we're seeing throughout the world. And obviously is, is vital to keeping um, our seas uh, abundant with species that uh, people want to eat. And, um, that is only becoming uh, more difficult as standard uh, f- fisheries management practices uh, continue because w- the quota systems that we've had in the past are not really applicable as climate change completely redistributes fisheries all around the world. And right. I-, I wrote a story for the paper. Uh, about this study um, uh, uh, by a scientist at Rutgers University um, who has written quite a lot about fisheries movements and how that is uh, potentially going to precipitate uh, conflicts between borders, just like my film Lobster War is about. Uh, But we're going to be seeing more of that. And there there are also interstate uh, disputes that we're seeing uh, throughout our waters here on the East Coast. Right. We, for example, um, black sea bass, uh, which was traditionally a fishery caught um, in the mid-Atlantic, um, is now increasingly found off the waters of Rhode Island, even uh, in, in the waters off Maine. And the distribution of that fishery has changed to the point that uh, you have fishermen in um, in the Northeast clamoring for greater quotas that would come yeah. at the expense of fishermen in, in in the South, and that creates a great big uh, political dispute because there's money involved, right. and th- those sums could be significant. But um, you know, do you base your quotas on history or do you base your quotas on current uh, current migration patterns and these are things that are hotly debated right now and wow. that we need more we need more discussion about to find an equitable um, an equitable solution Rock, that's a rock solid uh, point of view I, I agree with it uh, the, the question of how our management systems respond is really difficult and one of our uh, podcast hosts, Robert Jones, is uh, hosts the Catch Curve podcast, and he he participates actively in the Gulf Fisheries Management Council. And his in in talking to him, uh, he, he's he's talking about how the management systems are going to have to adjust, how difficult it is to adjust these things, and uh, fisheries management could be done successfully. There are good examples of that, 
But when the ground underneath, if I can say the ground underneath, it's in the water, but when there's an earthquake here and the whole landscape upon which we're managing uh, these animals starts to shift, it's going to be fascinating to see. And I, I mean this, fascinating in the sense of are we, how is our government and our, and, and our management systems going to respond uh, given the high economic value of what's being discussed? I, I don't know how that story plays out, but uh, it's absolutely going to, uh, the reality of the world is going to, is going to draw us into a very difficult and complex discussion on fisheries management in the United States and around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm curious to know, uh, David, that, you know, you're on your way up to northern to the northern coast of Maine there, up to the gray zone. You're driving through, uh, of course, the southern part that used to be home to the lobster fishery. Have you noticed, could you see uh, evidence of a transformation in those areas? Um, yeah, yeah. Um... You have to look closely and, you know, uh, areas that, um, towns where they're, um, further to the south where there were long time working waterfronts are, um, are now transitioning in some cases to more tourism based economies. Um, you, you look off the coast of, um, of Gloucester, where, which used to have a pretty significant lobster fishery that uh, isn't what it used to be. And of course, the ground fishery, uh, like, uh, like cod, uh, which is collapsed. Uh, and that was the bread and butter for a town like Gloucester for more than a century. And you see hotels going up there. Um, you see an effort to find new species. And you see um, less and less of a working waterfront um, than you used to. Uh, further to the south, in uh, another incredibly uh, vibrant um, fishing town, New Bedford, Massachusetts, um, which every year is is considered the most valuable port, um, in part uh, because the scallop of the scallop fishery, which uh, like the lobster fishery in in parts of the Gulf of Maine, um, has also uh, been quite healthy. Um, in part because of the environmental conditions and also management, um, uh, you see a whole new industry coming about and encouragement of that industry because of concerns about fisheries uh, and sometimes and in some cases changes that are at the expense of fisheries. And we're talking about the offshore wind uh, industry, which is just uh, on the cusp of of taking off in the waters south of. Uh, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket and Block Island. These are the waters off Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And we're going to start seeing this all throughout um, the East Coast. And uh, the, the plans to build um, hundreds of these massive turbines in these rich fishing grounds has created lots of conflict with fishermen. And uh, we just saw a resolution to one... Uh, big dispute. Uh, the state of Rhode Island was considering um, um, a vote that would have effectively um, blocked one of the first projects uh, uh, from going into these waters. Mm -hmm. um, but they uh, eventually stepped back when 
the developers of these projects started to offer uh, millions of dollars to offset the um, the consequences uh, for the fishery fishing industries wow. in, in those waters. And so uh, there was just an agreement uh, by these developers to, to pay um, you know, tens of millions of dollars over the course of, you know, the life cycle of these turbines. That story, and, and we have followed that on Coastal News today about uh, the, the expansion and really the explosion of uh, wind energy in the northeast uh, American part of the American shoreline, uh, New York State. Uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. Uh, the what I thought was very interesting, David, is the recent lease sale of the uh, of the wind territory off of I think it's Massachusetts uh, that went for f- about four hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, the bidders were included Shell Oil. There were a consortium of bidders who were who were. Uh, signing up for the lease rights, the, uh, the, the rights to develop these offshore wind resources. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we're talking about climate change, we're talking about fisheries, and along comes a carbon-neutral energy source, and uh, boy, that should be right at the top of the list. But obviously, there's implications for that, implications for that, particularly in the fishing industry. And so we're beginning to see this new industry emerge. And uh, it looks like uh, the states and the economic interests up in the Northeast are pretty driven to take advantage of this power production capability off the coast. And uh, that's another interesting story to cover, I bet, at the Boston Globe. Totally. And that is uh, certainly uh, uh, occupying my time during the day, uh, daylight hours. Uh, that's a big issue here, and it's only going to increase. I mean, we saw uh, the, the initial um, uh, leases that went for maybe a few hundred thousand dollars for areas to, to put turbines in offshore uh, to, as you noted, um, uh, a, few, uh, a few months ago, there being this uh, gangbusters um, uh, auction that, you know, dwarfed the previous uh, auction uh, by some four hundred fifty yeah. million dollars, and there's more more to come. More to come, and you know, if you compare it to what's happening in offshore oil and gas leasing, say up in Alaska in the Bering Sea, where they've opened up that area, this is part of the Trump administration agenda of expanding offshore oil and gas resources. We saw those leases go for less than thirty million dollars. The wind energy. Hmm. Leases, and I'm not sure how comparable these are in size and capacity. We're over 400 million right now off the Gulf in the Gulf of Mexico. The Bureau of Offshore Energy Management, the federal agency that manages all this stuff, has 78 million acres of the Gulf of Mexico. All of the remaining federal land is open for lease sale. I think the sale is open right now, or it will be opening in the next week or so. And I'm really interested to see what those bids are. These are deep water Gulf of Mexico oil and gas leases far offshore. Uh, It's going to be interesting to see if the market and the oil and gas industry and the investors respond to that with the same vigor that they have for wind resources off the northeast uh, coast of America. I, I just find this all really interesting to watch 
and the oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico uh, is is not ex- is not just there, as you know. The Trump administration has uh, ended the ban on uh, drilling for oil across the entire coast of the United States, with maybe yeah. a few exceptions. And this is a big issue here in New England, and it is one of the rare times where you see fishermen and environmental advocates and uh, politicians across the board uh, here uh, in every state um, yeah. uh, coming out against this. And uh, right now, you know, w- we're looking at s- seismic s- uh, surveying that's going to be done off our waters. And there are potential consequences of this um, uh, to go back to right whales. Yeah. You know, they're very sensitive to sound over very long uh, uh um, long distances, and these the exploring for oil and gas uh, requires intense acoustic uh, yeah. noise, um, um, and that is, you know, going to have an impact uh, on on marine mammals, but also on our fisheries, it especially is. especially if they were to actually uh, pass through all the legal hurdles that are going to come through. Um, uh, and actually there would be oil rigs off of Cape Cod. I mean, that would, uh, yeah, that could happen. The seismic permitting all along the Atlantic seaboard, uh, from Georgia up to where you guys are, those permits uh, have been applied for the loss. It's really interesting to see the alignment of interest, as you say, the commercial fishermen, uh, the environmental community. And here's the state of South Carolina. It's got to be one of the reddest states in the union with a Republican governor and a Republican attorney general who have filed suit against the Trump administration and joined, I believe, all of the other states on the Atlantic seaboard who are trying to stop this seismic uh, testing operation that's about to start. Uh, We're a little bit more familiar with these offshore energy resources and the impacts along the shoreline down here in Texas because we've got the oil and gas industry. And uh, you're right to be concerned, I will say that. Uh, um, So I, I, I think that what I am very interested in is the interplay of these economic interests, these transformations that are going on along the American shoreline, and why I think Lobster War is such a vivid film and an important film, uh, along with Sacred Cod, along with Gladesman, is to really start to look at what climate change is doing to force transformation in our communities. Uh, You know, and you could look at the hotels that are getting built in these former fishing towns in uh, the southern uh, part of the lobster range as a climate transformation issue. It really kind of is, if you're willing to see it. Right. And, you know, I mean, the, uh, the offshore wind industry, it's all related to climate change. Absolutely, uh, David. Well, listen, it's been just wonderful to uh, have you on the program uh, one of the great things about Lobster War is that you have entered it into a myriad of film festivals. And uh, my understanding is that some of these are, are forthcoming. And um, if you have it handy, David, why don't you uh, run us through where folks can see your film coming up? Sure. Uh, so you can um, see more about the film and all of our screenings at lobsterwar.com. That's our website lobsterwar.com. And uh, we have screenings uh, mainly in the, we, we just uh, showed it uh, last Sunday at the um, National Museum of Natural History as part of the Environmental Film Festival in the nation's capital. 
uh, it was really amazing. There were 800 people apparently who signed up and they had to cap it. And, um, and we had a really great, uh, a great audience there. And um, we're going to be showing it um, in independent theaters and in film festivals. We're going to be at the New Haven Film Festival uh, next month in, in Connecticut. We're going to be at the Woods Hole Film Festival uh, on Cape Cod. Uh, that's this summer. Uh, we're going to be at. Um, uh, we're going to have screenings all throughout uh, the region, and at some point, uh, we will be releasing it digitally in the coming months, um, so that it will be easily accessible to everyone. And we're also discussing uh, the possibility of uh, showing it on uh, PBS, and we have a few offers that we're considering right now. Has the Manadnock Film Festival happened yet? No, the Manadnock Film Festival is uh, coming up in April. Uh, that is uh, in Keene, New Hampshire. Um, so that is um, uh, uh, on deck. A film festival that's near and dear to my heart. And uh, for uh, any of my old Keene, New Hampshire buddies who are listening to the show, definitely go see Lobster War. It'd be, it'd be great to have some of those uh, fellow New Englanders up there learning about their neighboring state. <laughs> Yeah, it's beautiful up there. I love it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, David Abel, reporter for the Boston Globe, award-winning writer and filmmaker, all-around amazing guy covering some of the uh, most breaking issues about climate change on the American Shoreline. David Abel, thank you for being on the American Shoreline podcast and joining us today. Very special day for us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Winds gonna blow to Andor